This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode number 31, recorded on September 18, 2013. I'm your host, Tim Kreit, from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. And although I don't have any co-hosts with me in the studio at the moment, we have co-hosts and guests on Skype. So our first co-host, thanks for joining us, Andy Kolb from Delaware. Hi, Tim. Thanks for having me. Great to have you again. Another pseudo-co-host, our executive producer, Donna Lewinsky. Thanks for being here, Donna. Thank you, Tim. It's always a pleasure. And our guest today is Dr. Joseph Neglia from the University of Minnesota. Thanks for being here, Joe. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you are the Reuben Benson Chair and Professor of Pediatrics at the Minnesota American Legion and Auxiliary Chair in Children's Health at the University of Minnesota Medical School and the Physician-in-Chief at the University of Minnesota and Platts Children's Hospital. Did I get all that right? Yes, you did. (laughs) (laughs) Good. So our topic today is along your expertise, which is secondary cancer. So one of the first things we're going to have to do is define that, I guess. But before we launch into that, I'm wondering if you could just share with us how you got into this whole field, where you went for your training, you know, what kind of sparked your interest early on. So I'm originally from Southern California, uh, did my college and medical school there, moved on to, to uh, Baylor College of Medicine in Houston for my residency. And uh, really during that time, I, was, uh, I found myself drawn to pediatric oncology. I enjoyed the relationships the doctors had with the patients, enjoyed taking care of uh, uh, that group of kids especially, and also was, really wanted to be in a field where research was a, a major component of what what was going to be happening. So uh, ultimately made my way up here to the University of Minnesota, did a fellowship in pediatric hemoc, uh, a master's degree in public health and epidemiology during my fellowship, and started to work with Les Robeson and Mark Nesbitt uh, in the early 80s, late 80s, as we're starting to build our survivorship programs. This uh, cancer survivorship had been a longstanding interest of Dr. Nesbitt's. He uh, brought Les along into it and then brought me along into it. And uh, Les and I have worked together in this for, oh, since 1984, I guess, 85. Yeah, you guys are well known for running the Childhood Cancer Survivorship Study that's been going on a long time. When did that begin? Initial funding was, I think, in about 1993 or 94. So we uh, conceived the study during the, the late 80s, did some pilots to show that it was feasible, and then applied for funding from the NIH and have been continuously funded uh, for over 20 years now. That's a remarkable record. Congratulations. Yeah. So that era, cancer therapy had been going on long enough that we had enough survivors in that era already to be concerned about all their issues, I guess. Yeah, and exactly. I mean, it was back in in the in the mid '80s that people like Anna Meadows and Mark were were pushing the idea of survivorship clinics. Uh, we started uh, a clinic here at Minnesota at that time, uh, based in large part on on what Dr. Meadows had already done at CHOP. Uh, Anna went on to become the first uh, head of uh, uh, the NCI section on survivorship. As Les and I began to move uh, more and more out of the field of cancer etiology into outcomes, um, 
we we saw a real opportunity to, to hopefully make a difference in our understanding of long-term outcomes, you know, beyond second cancers, just the, the whole range of outcomes for these kids that were long-term survivors that we're seeing back in clinic. Was there, was there any particular patient with, say, a major complication or something that inspired you to enter this area of study? Uh, you know, it's hard to say. They're, they've all been important. I think... Uh, one of the one of the more interesting facets of what of my career has been that the very first child I took care of when I came to Minnesota as a fellow was a girl or is a girl who had stage four hepatoblastoma. Uh, we gave her close to 750 milligrams per meter squared of adriamycin, um, and she is now in her 40s, I think, with two or three kids and doing absolutely fine. Has had no heart issues at all. What was your secret? <laughs> well, that, and that's uh, hopefully in press soon in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. <laughs> so so right. we are, I think she is a really good lesson that, um, that there's a whole lot more than just the dose of a drug or the way it's administered that figures into long-term outcomes. It's that combination of the disease, the, the genetic makeup of the host, as well as the exposures that all factors in together. Because since her, I've had patients that I've had receive under 200 per meter squared of an anthracycline and need a heart transplant. So it is not, uh, it's not just the drug or just the infusion time. You wonder about her genetics, I guess. Yeah, uh, actually, Smita Bhatia and her group at City of Hope as part of the, the COG uh, ALTE 0031 study, the long-term follow-up study from COG, we've actually looked at some of the, the polymorphisms of patients depending on how they have uh, tolerated anthracyclines. And, and there's some very interesting uh, uh, segregation of patients by certain uh, host polymorphisms. So. Now, didn't they find something similar um, for the platinum drugs and the hearing loss, especially yeah. with the neuroblastoma kids? Yep. So so I think it's exactly the same story that, that's going to play out there. Uh, these things look like they actually segregate risk pretty well and, you know, it needs to be replicated. But hopefully this would be a good example of a way uh, to avoid a second cancer if you actually knew the patient had a particularly high risk going in, what? not secondary cancer. I mean, I meant any kind of late effect. Excuse me. So while we're on that, what could you define secondary cancer for? Is it just anybody that gets a cancer after having a first cancer? Pretty much. Um, the We've defined secondary cancers uh, in, in SEER as the occurrence of a, uh, a new primary tumor of any kind occurring you know, more a year or greater after the original diagnosis. In the childhood cancer survivor study, we've restricted this to things that occur in survivors who are five or more years out uh, because that isn't our only focus. But uh, certainly a new primary cancer can occur at any point, sometimes even within 18 months from uh, the original treatment. Does it have to be a different histology than the original one to be certain it's not just a relapse? You know, most of the time it is. The place where that gets real tricky is with brain tumors, uh, especially the occurrence where you may have two glial tumors that are occurring in, in an individual, sometimes even 10, 15, 20 years apart. You know, glial tumors look a lot alike. They can be very quiescent for a long time. They can actually move along white matter tracks and then show up in a distant part of the brain. So those, those have been hard, but certainly different histology makes makes the diagnosis very easy. It occurs to me that this whole area has got to be frightening for 
parents or, or patients, uh, sure. of course, you know, you go through and you beat your first cancer and then you're at risk for a secondary cancer. So um, how have you found that people can deal with that? Is there anything people can do to prevent secondary cancers? So I think one of the lessons of the, the survivor study has been that, you know, when we started the survivor study, we restricted entry to any to patients just to those who were alive five or more years from their original cancer diagnosis. We didn't restrict any further than that. They could have had active relapse at the time. They could have been perfectly fine at the time, but had to make that five-year mark. One of the, the more remarkable findings in that study was that the leading cause of death, even after five years, was still recurrence or progression of the primary. So over 60% of our deaths were due to the primary cancer coming back, uh, with probably you know three or four percent of the uh, the deaths due to to relapse of the the original disease, or I'm sorry, due to the development of a new cancer. So. It's a matter of, we certainly, the first part of this whole thing is putting it in, in some sense of perspective um, that the risk of developing a new cancer is actually much, much less than the risk of developing a, uh, a recurrence of the disease. And if we don't treat the first disease properly, the, the next time around is, is going to be even harder. So what is this sort of relative risk versus absolute risk of having a secondary cancer? Obviously, it's going to vary, but assuming uh, the generic patient who's not a member of a cancer family syndrome, which is a topic we discussed on a prior episode, uh, but sort of someone who doesn't seem to have an increased risk in general in the family, um, yeah. what are some so of those numbers? Yeah, pretty consistently it seems to run about seven or eight-fold over the general population. So, and that's, that's in the survivor study group, but it's, it's about seven or eight years for the, the standardized incidence ratio. You know, that translates to somewhere, again, somewhere around 7% uh, for a new neoplasm following treatment of, uh, of the primary tumor. So we're all at risk for uh, getting cancer increasingly as we age. Right. So uh, does the curve follow the same trend but in parallel a little higher or is there a blip at a it certain seems to fall, interestingly it's a great question because one of the things that we wondered early on was whether treatment with chemotherapy or exposure to radiation was actually going to draw out susceptibles in the population early on and then those those risks would sort of come back to that baseline population risk but that hasn't happened that risk tends to stay around sevenfold over the background for at least 20 or 30 years out and it doesn't widen. Doesn't seem to widen, but it does. It maybe shrinks a little bit, but it doesn't doesn't shrink back to the baseline risk. And that's driven a lot, I think, by radiation therapy exposure. Um, you know, radiation uh, has clearly been shown to be carcinogenic in a in a variety of circumstances. You know, the the atomic bomb survivors, the exposures to uh, that children with uh, with scalp ringworm actually received in the in the 50s. Um, all those cohorts have been followed for a long time and, and show that there is a continued risk of second cancers later on. And we're seeing that in the the survivor studies too. That that once anybody's been exposed to a substantial amount of radiation, there is a risk that stays there, and and it can manifest itself in many different ways. 
um, all the way from uh, basal cell skin cancers to breast cancers to brain tumors, sarcomas, a, a number of things that can show up later on. Along those lines, so, you know, when I think about secondary cancers and in, in, um, uh, cancer survivors, I think about the uh, children at risk for uh, uh, hematopoietic malignancies, uh, sure. leukemias, early post-treatment, uh, uh, primarily due to chemotherapy, and then later that transitions into the other tumor types that you have uh, have mentioned. So how does how does all when you when you synthesize all of that um, on the front end? How do you how do you quantify the risk based on specific treatments? And on the back end, how do you how do you quantify survival uh, based on the different treatments? So certainly, a basal cell carcinoma is going to have a different outcome than a, um, a, a malignant glioma or a or a, a, a leukemia. Right. So it's so there is that transition, Andy. That that you know, especially uh, I think we learned in the in the 80s that the the epipodophila toxins, the VP16s and VM26s. Would, were driving these MLL rearranged leukemias. And those things were often happening within the first three years following the exposure. Um, we learned from that early experience that it was, you know, dose of the drug, but also the intensity with which the drug was delivered that drove that risk and really abandoned those schedules probably back in the early 90s. Uh, you know, of every two-week VM26 and things that so we're, we're pushing that. We continue to, to see the, the topo isomerase 1 associated leukemias even now. I mean, we certainly haven't eliminated that risk completely. They, they occur even now. And they contribute to the front part of this, this eight-fold excess risk curve. What you see after about 10 to 15 years is that risk of the hematopoietic neoplasms, the secondary leukemias, starting to move closer to, to a risk of one, meaning it's the same for the survivor population as the, the general population, but doesn't really get to zero. And we do see the, the occasional very late occurring leukemia. Um, but we start to see a rise in the, these other solid tumors you know, really any time between 10 to, to 15 years out. Um, we've seen breast cancers as early as seven or eight years out in some of the, the women who've received radiation for Hodgkin's disease during adolescence. And we continue to see a variety of other cancers that, that tend to occur and, um, and somewhat are, are not that distinguishable from the normal cancers that occur in the population, except at a much higher rate. So we see the, the breast cancers. Later on, we're seeing colon cancers and prostate cancers. Uh, we're seeing uh, you know other lymphomas that come up, melanomas, but all of them seem to be occurring at clear and excess to the background population. With the radiation risk, is it all within the radiation field, or does radiation cause an increased risk outside of the radiation field yeah. as well? Pretty much stays within the radiation field as best we can tell. Um, it's a little hard to do. We, we've tried very hard to get records on, on these patients and understand that risk as best we can, but it generally is, is staying within the radiation field. There's a little bit of an association uh, with some of the secondary leukemias and, and radiation, so, and, and there it's, it's probably it's hard to quantify where, you know, where the, the neoplasm actually began in, a, in, a, in the bone marrow. So. 
Right, although I would suspect most radiation fields had some bone marrow in oh, yeah. them. Oh, at especially least the bef- kids. Yeah. yeah, at least before conform- formal and, and all the fancy. Right, yeah, and especially in little kids. I mean, the, the bone marrow is much, much more spread out than it is in, in older individuals. Is What about the uh, the treatment for secondary yeah. cancer? You know, typically it's thought to be they're, they're much more resistant, right? There hasn't been a lot of work done on, on survivorship of people with secondary cancers. The the British survivor study looked at the survivorship of secondary brain tumors and as you would expect showed a, uh, a real poor survivorship for people with secondary glioblastomas and high-grade gliomas compared with meningiomas. The other large group that's been, been looked at are the breast cancer patients and in general their survivorship has not been that different than uh, individuals with de novo breast cancers. Now, that said, we're, this group has high risk of, especially people that have received radiation to their chest, high risk of contralateral breast cancers. Um, and actually, uh, uh, the group at Sloan Kettering had used CCSS data to recently show that the risk in these individuals who've received radiation therapy to the chest, these women, is not that different than a woman that that harbors the BRCA1 mutation. So, you know, there there is risk and it is complicated. It gets complicated because you may not be able to use anthracyclines the way you might have used otherwise. Um, Certainly run into concerns regarding re-irradiation of previously irradiated areas and then, you know, treating the the topoisomerase-associated leukemia is is very difficult. But for many of the solid tumors, Survivorship's a very realistic hope. Well, that's great news because yep. that's sort of not the rumor out there. Yeah. Well, do, no. do patients ever get secondary pediatric types of cancers? Because most of the ones you mentioned are sort of adult yeah. kinds of cancers, right? So the comparative group in terms of treatment outcome, they may not have as good a treatment outcomes in general anyway. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, not so. that's not been a big subset of people getting... Uh, you know the the pediatric types of cancer, so so we really don't see like secondary neuroblastomas or uh, you know a Wilms tumor showing up in an 18 year old or a 20 year old. Uh, that that has not been one of the things we've seen. We've seen a few B lineage leukemias show up, but you know the, some of those show up in in the adult population anyway. Um, the the big drivers in our groups have been things like the meningiomas, the breast cancers, lots and lots of basal cell cancers, melanomas, uh, secondary lymphomas that that really are consistent with adult-type lymphomas. So, uh, Joe, can you, um, you know, I'm thinking about a consent process with a a new family and and talking to them about the various risks of of malignancy and uh, secondary malignancy or, or any side effect. And, and you know, I have to say, in my own um, practice, I I tend to downplay the the risk of a secondary malignancy because it is a rare event, and and faced with a new newly diagnosed malignancy, it can be quite overwhelming to consider that the curative therapy you're you're trying to receive uh, may actually cause another cancer. Um, you know, providing real statistics, but but trying to focus on on the need for treatment. So I, I'm wondering what your approach is in a, when you're talking to a new family uh, and trying to convey the the long term risks of uh, a secondary uh, malignancy compared to the benefits of treatment. Sure, I, I 
you try like you said i think you try and place it in perspective um if you're really looking at uh, a disease where you know that there's going to be risk uh whether it's uh risk associated with uh, uh you know vp16 vm26 you know cytoxin radiation whatever it is trying to place that risk within the context of the the larger risk of the primary disease i try and relay to families that the the major risk you know for this this patient probably for the next 25 years is primary disease and it really isn't until 25 years out that we see the curse cross that the risks of death from other complications of therapy be it cardiac failure second cancers uh, uh, actually cross that line for risk of death from the primary tumor so it's a long time to run out um, that we have certainly learned a lot about preventing these. The, the data of, a, of an eightfold increase in risk um, over the background, 7% you know, risk at, at 20 or 30 years, is really driven from eras when 60% you know, of the patients, 50% of the patients were treated with radiation therapy. We, we're actually compiling that new data right now. Uh, but that that our primary goal up front has to, to essentially take best available knowledge and consolidate all this to put together a plan that makes sense for this child um, and that at least you know today our biggest risk to the, the child's life is this this new cancer and that's that's what we have to treat first mm -hmm. um i have a question for you um so after these kids finish everything they sort of, you know, hopefully become long-term survivors and transition over into their pediatric, back to their pediatricians and do their sort of post-treatment care. Is there anything in in particular that, you know, the parents should be focused on, you know, maybe, may, maybe making or alerting the pediatrician to from their treatment or that even the the treating physicians can do to, to pass on information to the pediatrician that would sure. be useful to make sure that we can catch these things earlier. Or, or it might be to their or, internists. By then. That, or whoever they're, yeah, I guess you're right. But they're, they're old enough, they'll probably be family practice medicines. You know, that they can be alerted to, to to make sure that they're screening and getting the right treatment after that. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think everybody who everybody who's treated, every kid who's treated for a cancer should at some point be transitioned into a survivorship program. And that program, at a bare minimum, should be compiling uh, a, a treatment summary for that child and that family that they can carry with them going forward. And, you know, and then using that treatment summary to, as best they can, construct a, a, a follow-up recommendations for, for that child. So, you know, a, 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 a woman with Hodgkin's disease, when she's 14 years old and is now 23, you know, should be getting counseled that at 25, we're going to recommend she start getting mammograms and MRIs. And if she got 300 milligrams of anthracycline, she's going to need to be followed. Her, her echo is going to need to be followed. And that may be a very different discussion than the 14-year-old the boy who had osteosarcoma and is a long-term survivor. He may need some cardiac, may need cardiac follow-up, but, but really, uh, uh, again, no no generalized screening for a, a secondary sarcoma or something like that. So I think getting that information into the hands of the patients is very valuable. Um, it is difficult to educate 
primary care providers on this because, you know, the the childhood cancer survivor population they're taking care of is very a very small number of that their total population. Uh, so, educating the survivor and the family and and helping them become effective advocates for necessary screening is, is really important in this. Uh, that's probably the most important thing we can do. What do you think are the current issues that you're either you're studying or that need to be studied in this patient population? So I think think there are a few big ones. One of the one of the large issues right now is, is really, you know, you know I've said that seven percent of our survivors are going to you know develop a, an invasive new cancer you know by by say fifteen twenty years out twenty I think twenty years out I don't have all the data right in front of me right now so that means that eighty percent didn't or ninety percent did not we need to understand what is different between the, these these groups that are developing these new cancers and are not, you know, so we can begin to to actually target therapies or, or to to reduce the the carcinogenic exposures up front. So that I think that's a, a very big issue that that has to become understood, and we're working on that right now with with the NCI uh, and the survivor study. The the, uh, the other issue is really trying to understand what is the, the appropriate level of screening for patients um, that actually is going to make a difference. I think we're, we're quite far down the road with understanding screening recommendations for uh, possible breast cancer risk. Um, I don't think we're quite as far down the road as understanding screening recommendations for gastrointestinal malignancies, though when you look at the data, uh, you know, we're seeing risks of colon cancers and small bowel cancers in 35-year-olds and 40-year-olds that look a whole lot like what the risk is in the 55-year-old in the general population. So should we be moving colonoscopies and other screening procedures up uh, to younger ages in that population the same way we've moved mammograms up in the, uh, in the, uh, uh, in the women who've received radiation? I think those those are two of the, the very big questions we need to answer as soon as we can. Those sound like big ones because you got to take into genetics and environment, right, and diet yeah. and lifestyles and be able to track that over it, time accurately. Yeah, it, it doesn't get any less complex <laughs> as it gets further along. I guess it's job security. Lots more to continue to study. <laughs> well, we, have, we have a lot to learn yet, and I, I would hope that we actually – get to this point where this whole idea of individualized medicine becomes a little bit more of a reality. We may not be able to get to this uh, period of individualized medicine where you hand the pharmacist your DNA profile and they make sure you take, you know, the right amount of whatever right away. But we may be able to start to use some of this data sooner than that to actually Im inform our screening recommendations, maybe even some of the therapeutic recommendations for some of these drugs and things up front. Yeah, I'm sure all of this is going to change once we get the new novel agents getting up there. Oh, we don't, that, even, know, we don't even know what their long-term effects are right. going to be. That's <laughs> a good point, yeah. That's a whole, you know, all, all the tyrosine kinase inhibitors, I don't think we have any idea what long-term concerns those things may raise. And they do have short-term effects, despite mm -hmm. what the hope had been, I guess, since they were targeted. Oh, yeah, but, especially so. when you combine a few of them. They right. make it right. very interesting. Right. So, Donna, any final questions for Dr. Neglia? 
I do have another question. I for knew you. you would. I do. <laughs> I have a question about um, your view on the success of the survivorship clinics and increased education, like you were saying, of the families to be advocates. Um, you know, as the patients get older, they're their own advocates, but the families in the meantime advocate for their follow-up. I'm just curious about your overall impression of that. I, I think we've shown... Um, I personally know that the families are very strong advocates. Uh, you've taught me that. A lot of other people have taught me that. Uh, families are, are wonderful advocates for their children. And, and being informed and work, being an informed parent or informed family member and working together with the pediatric oncologist really is, is a win for everybody. It's a win for the oncologist, certainly the patient and the family. So I, I think that's family members can be very strong advocates. We have looked, Melissa Hudson actually looked not that long ago at a subset of women that had been exposed to chest radiation and uh, uh, other children that had been exposed to um, anthracyclines at, at high doses where we wanted them screened, but you know, screening rates were pretty low in the, the CCSS population and targeted them with specific information. We are writing you because you had this happen and we would really like it, your next visit with your doctor, to, to bring this up and tell him or her about the screening recommendations. And the number, the amount of screening went up in that group, uh, as opposed to people who just got sort of a generic, you know, email or generic flyer in the mail that talked about risk of second cancer. So we know that, that uh, informing people and empowering them with information helps improve uh, the screening uh, and the, the care that, that eventually does go on. So I think it's a very powerful thing and hugely important. Do you, do you think there's a, a growing percentage of survivors that are being followed up in the survivorship clinics? Yeah, I, I hope so. I, I Certainly in terms of the, the number of clinics available around the country, it clearly has gone up dramatically over the last 20 years. Um, so, you know, our clinics are getting continually to stay busy and getting busier. Um, and we're expanding these clinics out into the medicine arena too because, you know, a, a, a patient who's treated for breast cancer at 35 or 40 has a long life ahead of her and, and you know, she needs to know that information. The, the leukemia survivor who might be 25 needs to know that information. So we're seeing more of this roll out into the adult population too, which will be good for everybody. Handy, what about you? Any last questions? No, I think that was a, I think that was a great review, a great summary, and, and great discussion. Thank you, Joe, for your time. Oh, well, thank you all. We're glad to have the opportunity. Thank you all, and I hope lots of people hear it and, and get out to their clinics and get the information they need. That sounds great. So for those of you listening, if you'd like to ask Dr. Negley any questions by email, contact us at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org, and we'll pass them on to him. You can also follow us on Twitter at Twippo Podcast and sign up for automatic notification when we post new episodes using the RSS feed link on the Solving Kids Cancer website. Thanks to the team there at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. That team includes Donna Ludwinski, our executive producer. Thank you, Donna. You're very welcome. <laughs> and Jenny Song, Director of Communications. And also thanks to Scott Kennedy and John London, the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. 
Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.